0: to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Good morning, church family. How are we doing? We good? All right, four of you are doing good. Good. We have coffee available in the lobby if you need. Uh, my name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here, if we've not yet had a chance to meet. Really glad that you are here. Really glad to have this opportunity, as always, to open the Scriptures and to learn uh, about who God is and about what God has done uh, in redemptive history to, to redeem people for himself As Pete said a minute ago, we've been going through a sermon series called uh, Gospel Justice in Suburbia, uh, really looking at all of these different topics related to social justice, caring for the poor, providing for widows and orphans, uh, talking a lot about race and race relations and the sojourner and the foreigner and all these different very biblical themes because our culture is talking about these things. Do you agree? Our culture has been talking about those sorts of things a lot recently uh, and we believe that God has had some things to say about them in his word. And so um, even for myself going through, preparing, teaching most of the sermons, um, it's been a very shaping sermon series for me. Um, Getting to have our guest speaker last week, Javon Washington, was a huge blessing for me to get to hear from him and learn from him. And today we are going to close out this series talking about the church. Let me give you just real briefly a little snapshot, a little heads up where we're going. Starting next week, Uh, is Advent season. And so we're going to be doing the very traditional Advent themes of hope and peace and joy and love, joining with church tradition really for hundreds, even thousands of years, looking at those themes. And we're going to be looking uh, at those themes through the lens of Christ's two Advents, his first coming as a baby and his second coming, his return one day. So we're going to have a a short Advent series called uh, Tale Tale of Two Advents. And then after that is done, after the new year, we are, by God's grace, going to launch into the book of Judges, and I'm very, very excited about that. So that's where we're going, because we like to just tackle books of the Bible and spend time unpacking them. With that said, let me do this. Let me pray, and then we'll turn our attention to 1 Peter 2 and what it is that God has for us today. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the the truths it contains, God, truths that are meant to to shape us, um, to call us to repentance where there's sin to call us to greater faith where we lack faith, to call us to obedience and to call us on mission to serve and to care and to love others as you have loved us. Um, God, I ask and pray for all of us today, would you give us soft and teachable hearts that we wanna receive your truth. We don't want to just be hearers of the word, God. We want to be doers of the word. So would you uh, implant that truth deep in our hearts? And then, God, for myself, as always, I ask that you would guard my lips and help me to only teach that, which is in line with the truth of your word. And may all of our hearts and all of our attention be focused uh, on Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, I've... I've never um, really contemplated reading a children's book uh, to you as a pastor, but uh, I briefly contemplated it this week. I'm not going to actually read it to you, but I want to just reference this book briefly. This is a book called "You're Here for a Reason." The author is Nancy Tillman. How many of you are familiar with Nancy Tillman books? You guys, parents, grandparents—pretty popular author. I didn't really know this, but you can pick these books up. You go into Costco, you go into Target. There's bookshelves full of them. Uh, you go into, you know, Barnes & Noble, any of those types of booksellers. Nancy Tillman is a Christian. She's a believer in Jesus. Uh, she's a, a fairly popular children's author. And she had two different events happen in her life that really inspired the writing of this book. The two events are, 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 are such. The first event was a relative of hers got pregnant. And they found out that the pregnancy, the, 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 the infant in the womb, was diagnosed with Down syndrome. And so the doctor came in, and when the doctor delivered the news to the expectant mother, the doctor basically just said, okay, so we'll schedule the abortion. We'll schedule the termination. Let's get it on the calendar now, just assuming that those parents were going to choose to terminate the pregnancy because of Down syndrome. But this this family member of Nancy Tillman said, no, we believe that every life has dignity and value and worth. We're disciples of Jesus, we're followers of Jesus, and we believe that even those, even those lives that are, are weakened or are, are more vulnerable, they're still precious in the eyes of God. And so, no, we're not going to terminate the pregnancy, we're going to carry through to completion, and we're going to seek to live in a, a way that honors God and honors this precious life. Nancy Tillman, around that same time, took a vacation to Alaska, uh, where her son was a part of a church where some good friends of mine, one of my really good friends since childhood, is a pastor. And so she's visiting in Alaska along with her family and meets uh, my pastor friend. Well, my pastor friend is, they're a big adoptive family. I think they've adopted, what is it, six, six kids? We lose count. They've, they've adopted a lot of kids. One of the kids, um, just a sweet precious little boy, uh, I, I kind of, I call, um, there's certain people in your life, you know, who are kind of like a love sponge, do you know what I mean? Like, where it doesn't matter how much you snuggle them, doesn't matter how much time you spend with them, they just, they always want more. I have a kid like that, some of you have a friend or a kid like that, right? Uh, just a love sponge, This little boy is just an absolute love sponge, and Nancy Tillman met this precious little boy, well, he was adopted into this family, because obviously being in foster care, uh, there had been some abuse and some neglect, and the family members, wanted to adopt all of the other siblings, but said, we don't want this one. And so he was the passed over one. He was the one who was left behind. And so Nancy Tillman, this author, got to meet this little boy, this friend of ours, and put him on the, the cover of the book as part of the inspiration for it. He was actually at our house over the summer visiting. This vulnerable life, this adopted boy, this extra vulnerable life, this infant being born with Down syndrome, Two different disciples of Jesus, two different followers of Jesus said, no, these lives actually have value and meaning. We believe that God has special love and grace and care for the vulnerable, the, the broken. And so we're going to act as disciples of Jesus, as followers of Jesus, in a way that loves and, and, and supports life. Nancy Tillman who was inspired by that, wrote this book, and now writes this book and gets it out. And we don't know countless others who have an opportunity to hear a biblical message of every life before God has dignity, value, and worth. Even those whom society would say, we just throw them away. And what's amazing to me about, about this story is, so Nancy Tillman, I mean, she's got her books on, you know, bestseller lists. You can get them at Target. And like, she's kind of a big deal, right? But there's these no-name disciples of Jesus, people who, they're not going to be on the Today Show, they're not going to be on bestseller lists, they're not going to have their names written down in the history books, but they're faithful disciples of Jesus doing the work of the kingdom. And that's pleasing to God. That's pleasing to God. In fact, church history would tell us, despite the fact that we love to focus on heroes of the faith, and yes, the Bible tells us a lot about the apostles and the work that they did, which was very influential and very shaping work, and, and, and not to disagree with the message of the scriptures at all, but, but the reality is, is that what the apostles did in the early church was actually more limited in its scope. When you start studying church history, you realize that just regular John and Jane disciples are the ones who really carried the message of the gospel forward. There's a, a, a biblical scholar, a historian, named Justo Gonzalez, who uh, really love his two-volume set on the history of Christianity. And he says this about the early church. He says, in truth, most missionary work was not carried out by the apostles, but rather by the countless and nameless Christians who, for different reasons, persecution, business, or missionary calling, traveled from place to place, taking the news of the gospel with them. We've been talking these last few weeks about issues of justice. We've talked about caring for the poor. We've talked about taking in orphans and providing for the needs of widows. We've talked about being agents of racial reconciliation where there's division, bringing redemption and healing. And and I don't know about you, but there have been times, even after preaching some of these messages, after hearing Javon preach last week, I go home and I think to myself, what in the heck could I possibly do? I'm just one disciple of Jesus. I'm just one pastor. I think about our church. And, and this is not to put us down anyway, but I think like, just like, look at us. Like, what are we going to possibly, like for real, like look around the room. Like, what, are, what could we possibly do? These, these problems are so massive, the needs are so great. There are so many people living in poverty. There's so much racial tension in the United States of America right now. Like, what could we possibly do? God, really, is this, is this your plan? Is this really all that there is to it? And the, the, the more that I study the scriptures, the more I read the Bible, I've looked cover to cover to cover, I keep coming back to the same conclusion that God wants to live out his redemptive purposes in the world through his church. It's through his church. That's really the big idea for today. God's plan A to carry out the redemptive work of the gospel is the church. And oh, by the way, there is no plan B. No plan B. God took the blueprints for plan A and he threw away all other drafts. He says, I am going to accomplish redemption healing, restoration, provision for broken and hurting people. I'm going to provide those things in and through my church. We look at the church, you know, big capital C church, the the church that's worldwide across all nations, across all times. We look at the lowercase c, the local church, our church. We're one local church, just one body of believers. And for us as individual disciples, that's, that's God's plan. Like that's God's plan. Think about that. God's plan is not a a government program. In fact, the Bible says repeatedly, put not your trust in princes. Don't put your faith in kings. God's plan is not the nonprofit sector or the business world. God uses kings and businessmen and nonprofit sort of folks. God uses people like that all the time, but they're first and foremost being used as followers of Jesus and as members of his church. Amen? So that's the plan. That's the plan. I don't know about you, but all right. How, how, how are we going to do this? Well, first of all, I think what we need is we need a bigger vision of what the church is. A lot of misunderstanding about what the church is, even among churchgoers. Would you agree? Uh, 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 the church is—actually, let's do this. Let's do this uh, quiz style, okay? These are not rhetorical questions, and I'm not trying to trick you. Just simple yes or no answers. You ready? We'll just test and see how awake you are. You ready, 11 a.m. service? All right. Is the church a building? No. Okay, good. We're, we're one for one so far, 100%. You guys are acing it. Is the church an event? No. Is the church a civic organization to do good in the community? No. Is the church the blood-bought people of God, ransomed and redeemed, brought into the kingdom of God, adopted into the family of God to live out his purposes on the earth? Yeah. All right. Good job. We're tracking so far. Man, don't encourage me. I might start preaching here, Sound City. we, We need a bigger vision of what the church is. Because if all the church is an event, or if all the church is is a building, or even if all the church is is some civic organization, well, of course, we're never going to accomplish the purposes that God has for his church. But if we have a bigger vision, if we have a biblical-sized vision of what the church is, well, then there's maybe some hope that we can actually carry this this mission that God's given to us. So we're going to look at what the church is, we're going to look at the church's mission, Then I'll just close by highlighting a few tensions that we have to live in. So first, what is the church? 1 Peter 2, verse 9. You, Peter says, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. A lot of metaphors used in that paragraph, huh? The first thing the apostle Peter says about the church, about Christians, is you are a chosen race. Now for us right now in 2016 in America, that phrase could be very loaded. We have a lot of conversation going on right now about racial superiority, one race over another. Uh, Race relations are intense and inflamed. If if we look at that phrase through American eyes, yeah, calling ourselves a chosen race uh, could be used very badly. But we need to look at this through biblical eyes. We need to look at this through biblical eyes. The language of a chosen race, we see this first coming to fruition in Genesis chapter 12 where God calls a man named Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm going to choose you to be Used for a special purpose. And I'm going to choose your family, your descendants, your offsprings to be used for a special purpose. This man, Abraham, is the father of the Jewish people, the father of the nation of Israel. This is God's chosen race, God's chosen nation. But why did God choose the race of Abraham? Why did God choose the Jewish people? Was it so that they could be superior to all of the other people? No, God said to Abraham, he says, I'm going to use you to be a blessing to all of the other people groups on the earth. So God chooses Abraham. He chooses the Jewish people. Jesus ultimately is the descendant of Abraham. He is the one that comes, that fulfills all of those prophecies and all of those promises. Jesus makes atonement for sin through his death on the cross. Jesus rises from the dead, blowing everyone's minds And then he sends his disciples out and he says, we're gonna gonna spread this gospel, this this good news of God's forgiveness to the ends of the earth, Jesus said. There's a man named Peter, who's the one who wrote our text today. He stood up uh, on the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter two, you can read about it. He, He proclaims this gospel message. He says there's people there that were gathered to Jerusalem from all these different nations all over the world. And they heard the message of the gospel and they went and they took it back to their native lands. At the beginning of this letter, 1 Peter 2, at the very beginning in chapter 1, you see that he's writing this letter. He says, to the elect exiles of the dispersion. They're they're dispersed throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And almost all biblical scholars will tell us that Peter is writing to a mixed audience. He's writing to a mixed audience of Jews and Gentiles, and he's writing to Gentiles who are spread out throughout all of Asia Minor, what we would call Turkey today. Peter is not writing to a group of people who all have the same color skin. He's writing to a group of people who all have the same savior named Jesus. And he says, you are a chosen race. Javon last week said in his sermon that that Jesus is starting a new humanity. I love that phrase. It's It's a new humanity made up of people from all different racial and ethnic backgrounds. But see, it's not about the blood that's flowing through our veins that's uniting us. It's the blood that was shed on the cross that unites us. That is a deeper bloodline. Amen? So we are Black, white, Asian, Hispanic, native, all types of people, we are together a chosen race because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Amen? Biblical scholar Tom Schreiner puts it this way. He says, the church does not replace Israel. Talking about this Jew-Gentile church. He says, but it does fulfill the promises made to Israel. And all of those Jews and Gentiles who belong to the true Israel are now part of the new people of God. I just ask you, do you have more kinship with people that you share the blood of Jesus with than with those that you share the same skin color with? That's our hope. That's our goal. That's our aim. That's where Jesus is taking us. Number two, you are a royal priesthood. You look around this room, you look around your community group, you think, royal? Wow. Hmm. I didn't, I didn't see that one coming, Right? Royal priesthood. Here, God's creative purposes for mankind is that we would rule and reign. God, God created the man and the woman. He placed him in the garden. He said, rule over the earth. Uh, subdue it. That we are as, as God's um, viceroys, as it were. We're God's agents. Through sin, we, we abdicated our responsibility. We failed to do what God created us to do. But through Christ, we're now restored to that place and that position of ruling and reigning. By the way, if you're a Christian, you've been adopted by the king. So you're a, you're a prince or a princess. And I don't mean that sarcastically like when people say princess. Like I'm not, I mean that seriously. Like we are royalty in the family of God. And Peter is emphasizing that as followers of Jesus, as disciples of Christ, you are royalty and you're a royal what? A priesthood. The priests are the ones who would worship God. The priests are the ones who would lead others in worship of God. The priests are the ones who would minister God's grace to those who were broken and, and needy and hurting. The, the priests are the ones who would reassure one another of God's forgiveness. So you, disciple, you're a priest. Go buy a collar and let's get going. You're a priest. You're Vocation as a disciple of Jesus is a royal priest. You have a, a kingly ruling and reigning, a, a leading, a strategizing, a planning function, and you have a ministerial function, worshiping God, teaching others about the word of God, caring for the broken. You're a royal priesthood. That's a, that's big language. That's big language. Number three, you are a holy nation. Now we're gonna get political. You're a holy nation. Friends, the, the kingdom of God, if you're a Christian, is your primary citizenship. I am thankful to be a citizen of the United States of America. I really am. It's a good country. Um, it's, it's most certainly not without its flaws, deep flaws. But I am thankful To be an American. I'm not gonna sing the song, I'm proud to be an American, even though it's getting a little patriotic up in here, okay? But let me tell you something. If you identify more as an American than you do as a citizen of the kingdom of God, then you have some repenting to do. Because Jesus did not save us onto an earthly nation, He saved us into a heavenly kingdom. As the author Hebrew Hebrews says, it's a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And Jesus is not up for re-election, not every four years, not every four centuries, never. He's king forever, amen? And it doesn't matter who's elected president of the United States, it doesn't matter who sits on the Supreme Court, it doesn't matter what wars are happening in the world, Jesus is the king, and if you're a Christian, you're a citizen of his kingdom. And we have to remember that. Friends, we have to remember that. The the, the temptation for us as disciples of Jesus, especially in our highly politically charged atmosphere, y'all, I, I told you, I warned you, by the way, "Oh, I can't wait till next Tuesday, and all this election will be done. Is it been better the last couple of weeks? No. told you so. The temptation is to invest so much emotional energy and so much of our well-being and what's happening in politics. And friends, I have news for you. America won't last forever. Should Jesus not return? Like, I don't know how long America's got, like four or five years, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> judging from my Facebook feed. I... But, but there will be a day, should the Lord not return, there will be a day when the United States of America won't exist anymore. That's the, that's the way nations go. Kingdoms come, kingdoms go. Rome is here, Rome is gone. Greece is here, Greece is gone. The Byzantine Empire, that's a thing I read about in a book once. It's here, it's gone. The United States of America, here today, gone tomorrow. The kingdom of God will last forever. Jonathan Lehman, a pastor and an author, put out a blog post this last week right after the election, and just summed it up so beautifully about being a holy nation. He says this, more than anybody then, it's high time for Christians and churches to turn our heads from the national news and focus our attention back where the real political action occurs. No, it's not in Washington, and it's not through a quadrennial affair, no, No, it's a weekly affair and it occurs in and through our churches. Every week, our congregations gather as embassies of heaven. Oh, I love that phrase. Isn't that good? We're an embassy. You know what an embassy is? Uh, it's where you go when you live in a foreign nation to that someone would represent you where you came from. When, when I moved from Alaska, overseas in Alaska, to America here in Seattle, um, my embassy was Fred Meyer because we had the same grocery store back there. Whenever I was feeling like if I committed a crime, I'm just running to Fred Meyer. Um, that's weird. I'll take that out for the next service. Uh, Every week, our congregations gather as embassies of heaven. Every week, our pastors make a political speech as we go out as ambassadors with a political message. Here's the message. The king offers pardon for every rebel who would repent. A local church is a model body politic for the world. It is the most political of assemblies since it represents the one with final judgment over presidents and prime ministers. Together, we confront, condemn, and call nations with the light of our king's words and the saltiness of our lives. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven first. Peter says the church is a holy nation. Number four, we, the people of God, the church, we are God's chosen and beloved people. And actually for this bullet point, I'm, I'm, I'm drawing from a, a variety of different um, lang- words, language that, that Peter uses. He says, you're a chosen race. He says, you're a people for his own possession, a people for his possession. He says that you were called out of darkness and brought into his light. Or, or um, if, you, if you read in that verse, where it says, once you were not a people, you didn't used to be a people, but now you're a people. And what I see in this is that that God has a deep love for his people, uh, a choosing, an electing type of love where God says, I want you to be in my family. And so I'm going to rescue and redeem you out of your folly. I'm going to predestine you for salvation. I'm going to choose you and I'm going to bring you in. And don't act like I'm not gonna talk about predestination on the Sunday before Thanksgiving because I'm going to do it. Here's the thing. Many, yeah, I know I'd get an amen from you. Many in our churches, many churches in America today, especially in the West, really bristle against the idea of talking about predestination or election because it offends our Western American, I'm in charge of my own life, I'm the captain of my ship, I'm the, the master of my own fate sensibilities, It offends our Disney Channel theology. You can do anything you want to do and be anything you want to be, which is just nonsense because I wanted to be an NBA star when I was in middle school and I'm like 5'9 with some good shoes on, right? You can't just do anything you want to do or be anything you want to be. There's limitations on that, but we've bought into this autonomous, self-directed Western American belief that we're just, we're free in every way possible, but the problem with that is not only does it, does it not bear up under just common sense, it doesn't bear up with what the Bible says. And many in our culture bristle against predestination, but we know that that's a cultural angle because, because there are other places in the world, other countries, other cultures where they don't bristle at the idea of predestination and election. They see it as a beautiful and a holy and a good doctrine. Listen, friends. The doctrine of predestination or the doctrine of election is not given to us to make us feel prideful. And when it gets taken that way, shame on us. We need to do some repenting. The doctrine of election is given to us so that we would know that God wants us in his family. That you didn't sneak into the house through the side door. You didn't sneak into the dinner table because the family's so big. God didn't notice that some other kids snuck up to the table. No, that God knows you by name, that God loves you individually. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows what sins you struggle with. He knows what gifts you have, and He wants you in His family. That's the doctrine of election. That's such good news. Oh, well, but God violate my free will. He can't violate my free will. Forget free will. My free will was hell bent on damnation. I'm glad God violated my free will because I was choosing all sorts of bad things. And God said, enough. I'm flipping the switch. I'm ripping the blindfold off. You're going to see how beautiful I am and you're going to want to follow me. Yes, you make a choice to follow God. Absolutely, you make a choice. I chose to follow God. Yeah, but it's only after God enabled you to be able to make that choice by his choice. Okay? We, we're, we, we don't mind talking about predestination and election. Again, not to ever make us feel like we're so special and we're better than anybody else so that we could fall on our knees and worship our God and say, how could you have chosen a sinner like me? Thank you, God, that you loved me and invited me into your family. Is that good news for anybody? A chosen and beloved people. Number five, we are a mercy receiving and a mercy giving people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Mercy means not getting something that you have coming to you. And again, as, as sinners, as rebels against the king, what we have coming to us is judgment. That's what I that's what I had deserved. I get what I deserve. What I deserve would be judgment. But God, who is rich in mercy, took the judgment that was due to me and he poured out that judgment on Jesus on the cross. And the offer is for all who would put their faith in Jesus, for all who would trust in his death on the cross, his resurrection, for those who would believe in his name, you don't receive wrath, you don't receive judgment, you don't receive justice, you receive mercy. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. But the expectation through the scriptures is always that those who receive mercy would then want to be agents of mercy, would want to go share that mercy. You guys remember the, the parable that Jesus told of the unmerciful servant? Just to paraphrase it, there's a, a, servant, a servant who owes the king a ton of money, like trillions of dollars, an unpayable debt. And the servant, prideful as he is, goes to the king and says, just give me a little more time, I'll pay it off. And the king goes, you'll never be able to pay it off. You owe me trillions I'm just going to forgive the debt. And the servant's so happy and he's so thankful. He walks out of the room and he sees another servant who owes him like the equivalent of like 20 bucks. He says he grabs him and starts to choke him. Pay me the money you owe. And paraphrasing, the king goes, oh, oh no, no, no. That's not happening. Take, take, take this one, this wicked servant who doesn't understand the mercy he's just been shown and throw him into the jail. Friends, if you don't show mercy, it betrays a heart that doesn't understand the mercy you've already received in Jesus. Once we had not received mercy, now we have received mercy. And sometimes, you know, again, I don't know everybody here. Some, some of you may not be Christians. You may say, well, are we really that bad? Do we really deserve all this wrath talk, all this judgment talk? I'm going try my best. I do my best. I'm not perfect. Nobody's Perfect. God, if there's a God, let me just answer this way. If if there's a God, he made all all that exists. If he made us as humans, then he knows how we are meant to function, doesn't he? He knows what's good for us. He knows what's bad for us. He knows what's right for us. He knows what's wrong for us. And I believe that he would have a right to, to say yes to this and no to that. Just because you like pouring kerosene into your gas tank of your car doesn't mean that it's a good idea. Well, who are you to tell me I can't pour kerosene into the gas tank in my car? Like, well, I'm the designer who made the car. Like, I don't care. I'm going to still do it. like, okay, good luck with that. To, to say, well, maybe I'm not that bad. Nobody's perfect. To kind of minimize it. First of all, it, 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 it shows that you don't know just how significant Your life is, how valuable your life is, how precious your life is in the sight of God. And it also shows that you don't understand the the riches and the the heights and the depths of God's holiness. You know, you could lie. I've used this example before. If you, if, if you lied to me, that's bad, right? If you lied to a teacher, you might get in trouble. You might get your grade deducted. Did you know that if you lie to Congress today, you could be put to death? There's an there's a escalation. Lying to God, an infinitely righteous, infinitely holy God deserves judgment. But the good news is that like, the Bible constantly describes God as being rich in mercy. That God's heart and God's desire is to show mercy. That's our God. That's the invitation that is before you today. Receive His mercy. And number six, The church is sojourners and exiles. Some interesting words there. Sojourners, uh, meaning a wanderer. And and exile, actually the word sojourner, you could almost substitute refugee. And exile, those who are away from their home. These are loaded words that Peter used. For for the first hearers of this letter, um, being very familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, the language of sojourners and exiles is language that would have brought back to mind two significant events in the history of Israel. The first event is when the family of Jacob goes down into Egypt and they become a a great nation of people, the Hebrews, the Israelites, but they're enslaved in Israel. They're, They're sojourners and exiles. God had promised this family this family of Abraham descended from Abraham. God had promised them a land. You can have this land of Canaan. You can have this promised land, this land of Israel, but they're living not in the land. They're they're sojourners. They're exiles. They're not in their home. God, as we know, sends Moses, sends a deliverer, all that great Exodus stuff, and they get to go into their homeland, their home. But later on, hundreds, thousands of years later, They have kings, they have civil wars, they fight, they worship idols, they don't worship God. The the northern tribes don't last very long at all. The southern tribes last a little bit longer. But eventually they're taken away into captivity in the land of Babylon back into a position and a place of exile. So here they are, the people of God. They're they're supposed to be God's people. They're supposed to be in God's place, the land that he promised them. But they're not in their home. Let me ask you, Christian, living in the North Seattle suburbs in 2016. How comfortable are you? How comfortable are you? How at home do you feel? Do you feel very at home? Yes, I'm very happy. I'm very comfortable. This land is my my home. This land is my land. This land is your land from sea sea to shining sea, right? How comfortable do you feel or do you live with a holy sense of restlessness and discontent knowing that this is not our home? We await a promised land when Jesus returns and brings the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem with him, and then we will see the kingdom of God brought in totality and then we will be at home. Are you at home? Are you comfortable? Yeah, I'm doing pretty good. I feel very at home. I feel very rested. Thank you for asking. When Peter calls us sojourners and exiles, he means that we are to live with a holy sense of discontent. A holy type of restlessness that says, "Ah, This world is not my home, but I'm waiting. I'm waiting. Jesus is coming back. He's going to return. He's bringing heaven with him. All the brokenness is going to be done, all the bad stuff is going to come untrue. I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm here, I'm active, I'm involved, I'm engaged, but it's, it's not quite home yet. I'm a sojourner and I'm an exile. Now, that's a different vision. Look at, those, look at those lists. That's a different vision than the church as a civic organization or a church as an event that gathers once a week, amen? That's a biblical-sized vision of what the church is. That's a, a big enough vision to carry the mission that God has given to us, to be agents of his redemptive work, to care for the poor, to care for orphans and widows, to be agents of racial reconciliation between different divided people groups. That picture of the church can carry that mission. Anything less than that will falter and fail. And so if you're not part of this church or you're not part of any church, I, I just want you to know just straight up, that's what you're, looking at. It's not a weekly event that you attend. It really isn't. It's an invitation to join a nation, to be adopted into a chosen race, to be a part of a royal priesthood. It's a big God-sized, Bible-sized vision of his church. Now, with that in place, we can look at what the church does. Look at, uh, back in verse 9, I'll I'll read one little part of verse 9 and then skip down to 11. He says that, that we're a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Skip it down to verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. All right, what should the church do? Briefly, four things. The first one is very simple. Talk about Jesus. Jesus. Talk about Jesus. It said in verse 9 that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness. That him is Jesus, and excellencies is kind of a Bill and Ted way of saying Jesus is awesome. Jesus is amazing. You know, I, um, I, love, I, I, I love our church. I deeply and sincerely love our church. And I love um, that our church has leaders. I love that our church has good leaders. I love that uh, I get to work with these men and these women. They're some amazing leaders. I love that our church has good music. Aren't you guys glad our church has good music? I'm so thankful for these men and women who use their gifts to, to serve us. I'm thankful for an amazing children's ministry and the many godly men and women who invest in the lives of our children to teach them about Jesus and disciple them. I'm thankful for our church. I'm thankful that we're, we're rallying around some causes. I'm thankful for the the 14 families who showed up last week to the foster care interest meeting and said, we want to get involved in foster care adoption in some way, shape, or form. I'm thankful for the 10 families from this church that are going to go to Mexico here after the new year to serve at an orphanage and to be a blessing and also to bring back some blessing. I'm thankful for the causes that God's given to us. But at the end of the day, our church is not about a leader. Our church is not about some music. Our church is not about a children's ministry program. Our church is not about a cause. Our church is about Jesus. And if in any way, shape, or form, those other things distract from keeping Jesus the main thing, then we've got some repenting to do because our heads aren't on straight. Amen? That's what the church is about. It's about Jesus. It's about proclaiming how excellent he is, how awesome he is. And I'll even say this to you as as disciples. um, I'm thankful for people inviting your friends to church. Don't not invite your friends to church, but just remember at the end of the day, the invitation isn't come to church. The invitation is, Meet Jesus. Let me tell you about how awesome Jesus is. The church is just a place where we all get together and remind ourselves, oh yeah, Jesus is awesome. I forgot, it's been like six and a half days. I, couldn't, I knew there was something, but oh yeah, Jesus is amazing, right? That's all we're doing. <laughs> like, if you come here long enough, you're like, this pastor's got one message. It basically boils down to Jesus is incredible. Yeah, you're getting it. <laughs> Broken record, guilty as charged. We're not a leader-focused church. We're not a cause-focused church. We're not a church-focused church about how amazing we are. It's about Jesus. We're a Jesus-focused church. Number two, the church is called to flee from sin. Peter says, beloved, I, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your souls, the, the passions of the flesh, the the desires, just, I, I just, I want it, right? Any of you ever had that? Uh, you know, it's, it's 11 o'clock at night. You recently had your checkup. You know you got a couple of pounds to lose. And then it's like, you go to the freezer. It's like, there's that tub of ice cream. You're like, you know, I just, I just want it. I just, I must have it. I need, I need it. I need this, right? <laughs> Calorie deficit for sleeping. I can't be good. the the passions and the desires of our flesh. We live in a culture where if if our culture had a Ten Commandments, somewhere in the top three or four would be, if it feels good, do it. If it feels good, do it. But again, like I I said earlier, God God knows how the human creature is meant to work. And there are many things that, that do feel good to us in the moment, but Peter said they wage war against your soul. That these passions of the flesh, sinful passions, sinful desires, they actually do damage to our hearts. That's actually another one of our great virtues in our culture. Well, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. Yeah, but what about from God's perspective, the damage it's doing to you? It doesn't hurt anybody else, but you're defacing the image of God. Obviously, we need to say no to sinful passions, things that we want to do that we just. There's just certain things that God just says, no, this is sinful and it's wrong. It's off, off limits. But the Apostle Paul actually talks about how all things are permissible for him, but not all things are beneficial. Just because we as Christians have permission to do something doesn't mean that it's always good for us. It might not be explicitly sinful, but let me just ask you, when was the last time you said no to yourself on anything? When was the last time you said no to yourself just as an exercise of discipline. Apostle Paul has talked about, you know, I, I beat my body. I take it under control. I won't be mastered by anything. So this is part of the mission of the church is to keep, to keep ourselves, um, I use the word holy before God. We know our holiness is ultimately found in Jesus. But as we, as we seek to follow him, to live lives that are pleasing to God, that's part of our mission We've actually been saying this every single week. You can't separate the justice aspect from the righteousness aspect. If we really want to do good for the poor, we really want to help orphans and widows, one part of that has got to be, I need to focus on my relationship with the Lord and I need to make sure that I'm living in a way that's congruent with what he says about me. Because he says I'm holy. He says I'm a saint. He says I'm a child of God. I want to make sure my life is living congruent with that. You tracking with me, Sound City? Flee from sin. Flee from sin. Sin is very tricky. It will dress up. It will whisper sweet nothings in your ear. Sin is relentless. It will just keep going, keep going, keep going. Just wear you down. As one Puritan preacher put it, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. You can't compromise. You can't tolerate it. It's like trying to have a, like a lion living in the corner of your house. It's just gonna get hungry and eat you, Okay sin is like that. So this is for you, Christian. Flee from sin. Number three, live honorable lives among the Gentiles. Among the Gentiles. Sometimes there can be a tendency among some Christians to hear what I just said about fleeing from sin. and think, well, great. I need to flee from sin. That means I need to flee from sinners. Well, there's two problems with that. The first one is when you run away from sinners, you still took one with you, sinner. Okay? (laughs) And number two, I was free of charge. Number two, uh, that's not what God calls us to. It says right here, live such honorable lives among the Gentiles. Gentiles being a a term just to mean those who are not part of the the family of God. Live lives among them. Jesus said, I want you to be in the world, but not of it as I'm not of the world. Jesus said, I'm sending you out. Um, Christians, we can't give place to retreatism, can we? To go hide and um, there, there may be a time, let me, let me just say this. There, there are verses that talk about, you know, uh, like in the Psalms talked about, blessed is the man who doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers or walk with in the, ways, the paths of the wicked. Like There may be a time if, if someone is dragging you down or influencing you in a wrong way, you, yeah, you may need some separation. You may need to put some healthy boundaries in place. But at the end of the day, we're not gonna move into a cave in Idaho and hide away from all human contact. No, God has called us to be on mission among the Gentiles to live lives among people who don't, who don't follow Jesus. And then number four, the church's mission is, yes, to do good deeds. It says, live honorable lives among the Gentiles so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Uh, personally, I've tried to really hard to be, um, to avoid being prescriptive during this sermon series, giving you lots of ideas of here's what this could look like. Here's some ways that you can care for the poor. Here's some ways that you can provide for orphans and widows. Here's how you can be, uh, you know, an agent of of healing, uh, where there's racial uh, injustice or racial uh, brokenness. But trying to just leave it more open-ended, whatever God has gifted you, however God has wired you and however God has called you, well, then you're called to go live good deeds. Go live them out, Right? And remember, those good deeds, they don't earn us God's love. They don't earn us God's salvation. We're not saved by our deeds. We're saved by one good deed, the only perfect deed that was ever done, Jesus' death on the cross. That's how we're saved. But then from that foundation, he calls us out to live lives of service toward others. That's the mission of the church. Focus on Jesus. Fleeing from sin. Being among those who don't yet know or love Jesus and doing good deeds, serving, caring. Do you see that? Now, in there, there's going to be a few tensions. And so I want to close with a couple of these tensions. There's three tensions primarily that I can see that that we as disciples, if we're going to really wade into these waters, we're going to have to live with with these tensions, okay? The first tension is this. The tension of what we hope to do versus what we're able to do. I said at the beginning, you know, I go home after preaching some of these messages. I go home thinking, like, what, what could we possibly do? What can I possibly do? What can you possibly do? Some of you, you get together with your community group, and you look around, you're like, really, this is the Cracker Jack team that Jesus assembled to go, you know, lead his mission? Like, you know, I'm not trying to put us down, but th- it is kind of humbling, is it not? I don't have any, you know, Martin Luther Kings or Martin Luthers or St. Augustine's just hanging out in my community group. It's like, I'm just, you know, Pete, right? <laughs> All right, that's what God's going to work with, and, and there's there can be this pressure also when you start talking about getting active and getting engaged. Like the brokenness never ends, does it? The brokenness never ends. The, the, there's um an image that's been shared on Facebook a bunch this last week, so obviously it's true, and uh, this image. Basically, it's a map of the United States, and it's got two numbers on each state. The, the, the top number is the number of legally adoptable children in every state, and the bottom number is the number of churches in that state. And across the board, it's usually about two to one, sometimes three to one, the number of churches with legally adoptable kids. And the message is if every church just adopted one kid, we could wipe out, you know, orphan care. I'm like, that's an awesome attitude. I want to have that attitude. I want to have that type of optimism. But the reality is, is if A, we could somehow figure out how to rally all the churches to actually do that while we were doing that, more kids are going to come in, need homes. I want to have the type of optimism that we could wipe out poverty. We could do it. Let's go. With the reality that Jesus said, the poor you'll always have among you. There's a tension there, is there not church? Here's the the big idea. Some of you are going to go home and you're going to feel guilty. Like, I just didn't do enough. I should have done more. I could have done more. You need to understand that your job is faithfulness. Jesus' job is results. Your job is be faithful to what he's called you to do. Let Jesus handle the ends. Okay? That's the tension we live in. Number two, a second tension is this. Serving a broken world and yet being despised by a broken world. Peter says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as, what's the word, Sound City? evil doers, They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Like you're out there trying to do good deeds. You're trying to live an honorable life. You're trying to help. And the reality is sometimes the brokenness in the world doesn't appreciate that help. Some of you parents might know this. You ever, you ever had your kid get like hurt or injured and you go up, you're like, oh, I'm so sorry you got hurt or injured and you're like snuggle them and they like bite you? Is that just my kids? Like somebody else, please, like, like they, they don't appreciate all of your love and snuggles. They're like, ah, get away from me. Ah, like, oh my gosh, like, what's wrong with you? Maybe it's just only my kids. But, but it's kind of like that. You know, you're, you're there to, to help step into the brokenness of the world. You're, you're there to help, to serve, to care. And then sometimes... People lash out and they hurt you. And we as disciples of Jesus need to remember that our vindication is not in being accepted by the world. Our vindication is found in Jesus. And it's a a delayed vindication to a certain extent. Peter says, you know, they're gonna see your good deeds and they'll glorify God on the day of visitation. That means when Jesus returns. So right now people might say all sorts of awful things about you. But one day Jesus will return. And he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. And that's the only thing that matters. Amen? Third tension, last one, is this. Living as citizens of the kingdom of heaven and of the kingdom of man. We have dual citizenship. Yes, we're Americans or wherever you're from. If you have citizenship in a different nation, you're a citizen of the kingdom of, of that nation. I know there's even like some Canadians here. God bless you. We love you. You have citizenship in, in an earthly kingdom and there's always going to be a pull and there's always going to be a draw to invest more in that earthly kingdom, that kingdom of man. You know, all, the, all, the, um, all of the apocalyptic language that I've seen on Facebook in the last few weeks, the, the world is coming to an end. It's from people on both sides of the political aisle. What it shows me is they put all of the eggs in the proverbial basket of the kingdom of man. And at the end of the day, yes, I, I do care how America goes. I do want... Uh, The United States of America to be a people that love Jesus, that trust Jesus, that live out the values of the kingdom. But at the end of the day, there's just a tension there where I have to recognize I'm a citizen of the kingdom of heaven first. And sometimes the values of the kingdom of heaven, they don't mesh with the values of the kingdoms of the earth. And we have to be prepared like like Daniel, like Esther, like those who stood and had to make a choice. I'm going to choose the values of the kingdom of God over the values of the kingdom of man. It's a tension we have to live in. I want to do something before we respond. Um, you know, we, we've, we've talked about what the church is. We talk about what the church is to do. And so I, I really do mean it. Like, I've kind of been humorous about it, but I really sincerely mean it. Like, here, here we are. We are one local embassy. We are one local outpost for the mission of God, Sound City Bible Church. There's lots of other churches that love Jesus, lots of other churches that preach the Bible. We're part of this family. But when we look around the room and I look around the room and, you know, the first service before us, just, hey, God's got things for us to do. And so I wonder if we might just hold quietly for a moment and if I could even just pray for us that whatever it is that God's calling you to, the specific part of the mission that God has for you, that we could even just hold for a moment and let God stir that in your heart. Not every disciple can do everything. You can't do everything. You're one part in the body. Amen? And I actually believe that's true about local churches too. Local churches, one local church can't do everything that there is to do. Sound City, we may be good at a few other, few things and not so good at a few other things and so we're going to partner up with other churches that are good in those other things and we'll help bring strength and support where, where we're strong. So let's just do this. Let's take a moment. I'm going to invite God to just speak to your heart as a disciple, as an individual and then for us as a A church corporately. So let's go before the Lord in prayer. God, we're we're listening. We want to listen. God, we believe that we are here for a reason. That our lives, uh, we're not here by accident. God, it says you allot the times and the places in which we're born and live and die. So you hold our past, present, and future. God, every Christian in this room has been uniquely gifted, has been uniquely created as a, as a, a specific part in your body. And you've called them to, to service, to good deeds somewhere. God, the one thing we all have in common is that we want to be motivated by your gospel. We don't want to be motivated out of fear or guilt or duty or obligation. We want to be motivated because, Lord Jesus, you came and you rescued us. So help us to follow you on mission. Speak now, Spirit. Spirit wherever each of us are are called to serve, are called to to put our hands to work for the good of your kingdom, I pray that you'd help us to see that. God, where there's fear, would you give us courage? Where there's apathy and laziness, a light of fire in our bones. Where there's hurt and and I've been wounded and I don't want to go there again, God, would you bring healing and restoration? Where there's confusion, God, would you bring clarity and direction? Help us to keep our eyes focused on Jesus above all as he leads us on his mission to bring healing and redemption to a broken world. We pray these things in his name. Amen. I want to invite us into a time of response now. And we're going to respond in a a couple of ways. The first way we're going to respond is through the giving of our tithes and offerings. Uh, We'll have our volunteers collect the offering, and they're going to also hand out the elements for communion. Um, If you're a guest, please don't feel any obligation to give. You're welcome to if you'd like. But but this is for us uh, to do as an act of worship to God. We're going to invite our younger students class to come and join us for this time of response as well. And I want to do something different. Usually during this time, I I usually read through like the discussion questions and all that kind of stuff. I want to do something a little bit different. I'm going to invite my friend Eliezer to come join me here on stage. And I want to just have an opportunity to highlight one way that one disciple of Jesus has uh, chosen to kind of put the gifts and the skills that God's given to him to use for the good of the church. So this is my friend Eliezer. Can you guys say hi, Eliezer? Love Eliezer, he and his wife are covenant members of the church. You still, you don't don't wanna join us on stage? No, okay, you can wave from afar. I tried to get his wife to join us on stage, but she says she has stage fright, so... We uh, we're very thankful for this family. Uh, she helps serves in our children's ministry. Eliezer helps do a lot of the graphics and the you know the printouts and things that you see. He helps design those. He's a very gifted uh, graphic artist. And uh, so earlier this year, God kind of put a burden and a passion on on his heart to start a publishing company to start uh, designing and to put out books that can teach specifically for kids, but gospel-centered messages for kids. And so um, just talk to us a little bit about like kind of that heart and and just how God kind of put that in you. Like, hey, I want to use the gifts he's given me to serve in this particular way.
1: Talk to us about that. Sure. Yeah. I uh, yeah. So we founded Patrol Books, which is a publishing company mainly focused on producing high quality, great looking, awesome products. Uh, We saw a So no compromise. No compromise there. Um, So, yeah, so for us, uh, we saw a need in the Christian market for um, communicating gospel truth through beauty and how beauty tells the truth about God. Uh, But we're also using it, obviously, as a publisher. You're also an educator, so you get to talk to people about different issues. So right now we're working with a professor from Southern Baptist uh, Seminary, and he's working on a children's book for parents to teach their kids on how to teach uh, about the awkward issues of race and yeah. uh, and, and from a it's gospel awesome. perspective. And it's so awesome. so are you also using the publisher to talk about issues that most publishers don't talk about or they don't talk about it from the angle that we would like to talk about it. Yeah. So yeah.
0: Yeah. What What I love about this is, so this isn't something that like, like, Oh, we as the church, we need to have some big program where we start a publishing thing. Like, we can't do all of those sorts of things. But this is a disciple of Jesus who has a certain set of gifts and skills and talents and says, You know what, Jesus, you're calling me to do this. I want to invest my time, energy, staying up a lot of late nights, a lot of sleepless nights. That's right. And uh, being able to, to do something that's a, a blessing and a value to the kingdom and to the greater world. So um, tell us a little bit about the book Golly's Folly. And then actually, we we had him set up a table out there. If you guys want to check it out, Uh, the books are available out there. And there's a second book also. Tell us about the two books.
1: Yeah, so so, because we're a publishing company, we publish other people's books. So we wrote Golly's Folly, and Golly's Folly was written in an airplane uh, while I was struggling through my own struggles through finding meaning and fulfillment in my own stuff. So the same way we all think that either our spouses or money or positions or – Status will give us satisfaction. I I wrote that story. It's a fiction story on uh, finding satisfaction. only finding satisfaction in your relationship with your heavenly father. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's kind of a prodigal son sort of story, but retold. Ecclesiastes, yeah. Yeah, it's good. good. And then the other one you brought was about?
1: Yeah, so that one is about giving. There was a missionary. uh, There's a friend of ours who was a missionary in the Philippines for about a year. And he wrote a a book with his wife about giving. Uh, He learned a lot about the Philippine culture. And so he was inspired by that and how humble they are um, and wrote a book on giving. It's
0: awesome. So Eliezer, I appreciate you. I appreciate you using your gifts to serve us as the church, but I also appreciate this, this heart to use the gifts that God's given you, again, to, to make an investment in the world. I love the idea of a kid's book talking about race. I'm really excited to see uh, that one when it's finished up because it's, um, it's just such an important and needed topic for so many in our culture. So anyways, can we say thank you to Eliezer and uh, for his service to us? Appreciate you, brother. Like I said, if you want more information about that out at the Connect Desk afterwards, you can talk to him. Uh, Just a good example of someone wanting to use their gifts and their abilities uh, to to be about kingdom business. We're going to now turn our time to a celebration of the Lord's table and to singing. Uh, We're going to sing a new song today. That's a, a somewhat older hymn that we've kind of reworked a little bit to Uh, speak about how Jesus gave of himself. And so then he calls us into service. I'm excited to sing this song together. Let me read from 1 Corinthians 11 uh, about celebrating the Lord's table. This is what we're about to do. The apostle Paul says that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So today as we celebrate this this bread and this this wine, this juice, that we, we remember that Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed, that we might be joined to his church. And that Jesus came on a rescue mission for us and then he calls us to follow him on his mission then there's a, there's a warning. It says, uh, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And that unworthy manner simply means with a prideful heart. We don't come in here today. There's nobody perfect who's about to take communion. But an unworthy heart says, I'm pretty close. A humble heart. God, forgive me for my sins. This, this broken body, this shed blood was necessary because of my failings. So let a person examine himself and then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Let me pray for us when we begin our time of singing in response. You can take the bread and the drink um, after I'm done praying and then stand and sing with us. God, we thank you for the good news of the gospel that you have come on a rescue mission to seek and to save us. And God, I pray that that message of the gospel would work itself deeper down into our hearts and into our lives that we would want to serve others. We wouldn't want to just be a termination point. We wouldn't want to just be the end of the story, but we want to take what you've given us and use it for the betterment and the blessing of others. God, I ask and pray for our time of singing now and for our time of celebrating the Lord's table. I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to be with us. God, help us to just lift our hearts before you as we sing and as we respond to this grace. We pray all of this in Jesus' good name. And everybody said, amen.